Welcome to the Congress of Forms podcast. I'm your host, Christy Wampole. Can't help about the shape I'm in. I can't sing. I ain't pretty and my legs are thin. But don't ask me what I think of you. I might not get the answer that you want me to. Since this is the inaugural episode, there are a few necessary formalities, a few requisite explanations that should be handled right away. Who am I? A question one rarely has to answer in any way than a superficial one. I'm a person, a tail end member of Generation X, a person living on the East Coast with Texan roots and a Californian soul. I'm an assistant professor of French literature at Princeton University, but do a lot of thinking far outside my field of training. Ideally, anyone involved in the humanities uses their own field as a mere starting point for getting at the biggest questions. When a person picks a specific humanities discipline, philosophy, music, art history, they adopt an initial vantage point from which to look at the world, one that is a kind of supplement to the seemingly natural perspective given as a condition of birth or upbringing. This new vantage point lets you estrange what you thought you knew in the best case, this will be the first of many shakeups, the first of many new calisthenic positions for your intellect. And this is exactly why I do everything that I do. I want to consciously unseat myself from the cushy recliner of received ideas. The humanities, I think, should make a person deliciously uncomfortable. So I'm a person, a more or less a-geographical person, a kind of pastureless donkey, stubborn but good-willed, a professor-type person, a person who would rather float between categories, male, female, academic, non-academic, night, day, low, high, than commit to just one. This is your host, an in-between creature. A second question, why a podcast? For several reasons. First, it's fair to say that the I is the privileged sensory organ in our slice of historical time, and maybe it always was. And I don't mean to be a contrarian, but I believe the eye is too pampered in our day, too pandered to, too well-fed. It's easy to forget that there are other sensory organs that could use some care. In recent years, I've become more and more disenchanted with vision and its tendency toward delusion. The eye is easily fooled. It happens to each of us dozens of times a day. The eye, it seems, is wired directly to our organs of desire, our organs of action or consumption. It's generally the eye that triggers the impulse to click, to want, to reach. But the ear has somehow a more tempered character. So as a small act of resistance, I want to disregard the eye for a bit and turn all attention to the ear. The ear is such an incredible instrument for detecting atmosphere. In this podcast, I want to convey information to you, but more importantly, information couched in an atmosphere, that beautiful and mysterious phenomenon that language can't fully describe. Music, the reverberations of everyday life or of an exceptional event, the ripples of sound made by a bug or a bird or a motorcycle, 
The timbre of my voice and those of my guests, inflected by mood, physical states, even temperature. These will be some of the key elements of the atmosphere I hope to create through this podcast. Another reason I've created a podcast is that I'm a committed student and practitioner of the essay. I believe the essay form is the best genre through which a contemporary person may leave a record of their existence. Because of its flexibility, the essay can shape itself according to the brain and aesthetic vision of the individual. Anyone can be an essayist. The essay isn't even limited to the written word. There's the photo essay, the essay film, the audio essay. One can do nearly anything essayistically, that is, tentatively, trying it out as you go, feeling along through your experience without knowing exactly where you'll end up. The essay is one of the very few places where it's perfectly okay not to know for sure. In each episode, I'll try out a different theme, along with my guests, and I'll think through some of the infinite ways one can have a look at the particular question. I've always favored the question over the answer, and this podcast is a celebration of this preference. And the final and perhaps most important reason I wanted to start this podcast There is a very regrettable disconnect between those inside the academic ivory tower and those outside it. I have a foot in both worlds and can see that there are countless conversations just itching to be had. In the US, the expression public intellectual sounds very gross, and as a congenital populist, it makes me shudder. But in many countries, the phrase public intellectual is not an insult. It's simply a phrase used to describe someone who teaches and researches at the university, or someone who used to, but who doesn't keep what they've learned hidden under layers of impenetrable jargon or behind the sacred walls of higher learning. Whatever they're called, there should be a large body of vocal university people who spend a lot of time looking in, under, over, and around a problem, and who initiate a public dialogue about it in layman's terms. A podcast like this one is one way to bridge this gap. There's no reason to hide the thoughts away. So I've explained who I am, why I've started this podcast, and now I'll answer a third question. Why did I give the name Congress of Forms to the podcast? So this expression comes from the introduction of a book by the French photographer Claude Caen. Uh, She was loosely associated with the Surrealists and received very little recognition in her time. But today she's become somewhat of an icon. And you look at her images and you think that they were made yesterday even though most of them were made in the 1930s and 40s. So the introduction to the book, written by someone named Pierre Macorlan, poetically engages with the photographer's corpus. Macorlan writes, Cette nuit surplombe un étrange congrès de formes et d'idées tendres ou rageuses, un orchestre philosophique en sourdine. This night overlooks a strange congress of forms and ideas, tender or furious a muted philosophical orchestra. I was completely enchanted by this expression, Congress of Forms. And obviously here, Congress doesn't refer to an administrative body, but Congress in its original Latin etymology, walking together. I want to walk with you, remote listener, through various ideas and forms. I quit my dreaming that I found you I started dancing just to be around you
first episode is vocation. I'm attracted to this word, a religiously connoted expression for a career or some kind of spiritual calling, because it can be used to add a sort of mystical importance to one's job. It's sometimes forgotten that vocation implies that a voice has called you to a particular task. But what is the nature of this voice? Why this metaphor? How has the term been secularized, for example, in the idea of a vocational school? What makes a person feel called to do a particular thing? Is it simply their own subconscious doing the talking, or is the voice from somewhere beyond? For this episode, I interviewed several people, two guys who work at the coffee shop I visit every day, a professor of German literature, a rabbi, a professional musician who, because of a medical condition, had to quit that life altogether. And finally, a young student who has decided to become a monk. In the spirit of essayism, I wanted to look at the question from many different angles, and these people helped me do it. Trabajo, quiero trabajo, porque esto no puede ser. Un día veré al desierto convertido en un vergel. Trabajo, quiero trabajo, porque esto no puede ser. Un día veré al desierto convertido en un I first thought about the difference between a job and a vocation. I've had lots of different jobs. I worked in a bookstore. I processed stock in the back room of a clothing store. I was a translator. I sang French jazz in bars. But none of these jobs was a calling. They just helped me make rent each month. I consider writing to be my real vocation. What can be understood about the gap that separates job from vocation? I decided to start by talking to someone who considers their work a job, but not a calling. These two baristas work at a cafe where I go every day, two very sweet guys with kids, with a lot of responsibilities. I stopped them for a minute after their shift to ask them about their work. I like doing what I do. I What's like working that? on a machine, making drinks, you know. I can make them look real pretty, you know. I like to see my customers happy, you know. When they see me and they get that smile on their face like, hey, you know what I want. You have it ready for me. Yeah. I mean, it makes you feel good. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? I'm just happy to make people happy, yeah. you know. I guess when you come up, I know you already, you know, seen you a while. Get yeah, the exactly. Drink, and it's, and it's like that with everyone. Like for me working here for so many years, when they come up, I automatically know what they want. I get them ready because for the most part, I know a lot of people are in rushes. They have to get to where they have to get. So when they come up and they have the stuff and I can get them out quick, oh, yeah. it's like, hope you're the best. Okay, see you later. You know, a lot of good people here. You know, a lot of good people here. I just don't mind working here. You know, I love it. You know, it's not one of them jobs where I get up in the morning like, oh, I gotta go to work today. You know, 
I love coming to work. Yeah. You know? What about you, Mike? What's your favorite part of the job? <laughs> Uh, I would have to say some of the same things he did. Yeah, you know, I like to, to make people be happy and put smiles on their face. You know, I like to be very friendly with people. Like, like I said, you know, you get to know people and it's just like you see them in line. There are six people behind and you got their drink ready waiting for them. And it's just, they're just, oh, wow, like you really remembered me. Like I know certain students by name, by first name, and I just, I'll, I'll say hi to them. It's just rewarding to know that they appreciate you. It just, it feels good to, to know that someone appreciates you what you're doing for them yeah, exactly. it just feel, it's, it feels nice this is what feeds your family you know this is what gets you up in the morning this is what pays the car payments this is what pays the insurance this, this is what we have to do to make everything go by so when I was a little kid I've always wanted to be a lawyer I wouldn't have been a great liar though okay you, you know like <laughs> are you good at arguing no. Not nowadays, no. I, it's something I really try not to do. I've been through a lot within the last year or so. You know, with my acting and everything, and just by me living, being alive, I see like the small stuff, the arguments, it doesn't even matter. You had a serious motorcycle accident that kept you from working. Yes. Kept me out a while. It made me look at life totally different. Because, you know, Close call. I mean, I got hurt pretty bad, and you know, just having to learn to do things over again. Like you know, certain things, you know, get my balance back, and you know, talking, you know, like all that stuff just made me think twice. Like, dude, like you're so lucky. Yeah. Like, so you think every day about you know how you should day, approach life. Exactly. Every day, I just think you know, the small things in life count so much to me. Now. Yeah. Like my wife, my kids, just them seeing me like that. I would never want them to see me like that again. You know, it was rough, and I can only imagine what they went through. I'm just happy to be here, getting stronger. So after I asked Mike and Kenny this question, I tried to remember if I myself had wanted to be something in particular when I grew up, when I was a kid, and I, I vaguely remember wanting to be an artist and a teacher. But I think these are memories that I made up later. I don't think I actually had them as a kid. The only evidence that I have of wanting to do something when I grew up comes from my grandmother who swears that I would tell her that when I grew up, I wanted to marry Jesse Jackson. She said I said this when I was six years old, that I wrote his name over and over on, on paper with crayons. And I have no idea how I even knew who Jesse Jackson was, but apparently my childhood dream was to grow up and marry him. And then, for our children, young America, hold your head high now. We can win. We must not lose you to drugs and violence, premature pregnancy, suicide, cynicism, pessimism and despair, we can win. Whoever you are tonight, I challenge you to hope and the dream. Don't submerge your dreams. Exercise above all else. Even on drugs, dream of the day, you're drug free. Even in the gutter, dream of the day that you'll be up on your feet again. You must never stop dreaming. 
face reality, yes. But don't stop with the way things are. Dream of things as they ought to be. Dream. Face pain. But love, hope, faith, and dreams will help you rise above the pain. Use hope and imagination as weapons of survival and progress. But you keep on dreaming, young America. Dream of peace. Peace is rational and reasonable. It actually makes perfect sense. I see why I wanted to marry him. So clearly Mike and Kenny are very pragmatic about their jobs. For them, it's a means to an end. It's to pay the bills. It's to support the family. It doesn't correspond to their childhood dream of a particular profession. And they both mentioned other jobs that they would really enjoy doing in place of working in this cafe. And you probably heard a lot of noise in the background. That's because we were at their place of work, which is a university cafe at an Ivy League university, not the one where I teach, but a different one. And so there's something about this atmosphere that surrounded us as we spoke. Um, It was a a kind of buoyant, joyful atmosphere of people who are probably going to be okay in life, who might even have the, the chance to pursue their vocations or their callings, and who are fortunate enough to be living in a circumstance where this is much more within reach. But does vocation necessarily imply a career-related calling? What if your spiritual calling is bound to your profession? I was very curious about this, and so I, I wanted to talk to someone whose profession and whose spiritual life is very intertwined. So I went and I asked a rabbi. I was born in Seattle and um, had a religiously complicated childhood, I guess. My uh, mother's Jewish, my father isn't, um, and kind of had a very tangential connection to Judaism until high school, um, where I connected with a, with a rabbi and with a sort of Jewish education. And then in college, um, and I also came out in high school, so there was lots of overlapping things there. Um, and then in college, I wound up uh, running the Jewish group on my campus and becoming very close to a rabbi um, in the city where I was in school. And kind of by the summer after college, or the summer after college, wound up on a, almost by happenstance, um, on this week-long family retreat with a bunch of rabbis, a bunch of families, a bunch of rabbis, and just really had a profound experience of, oh, I I could do that. I think I want to do that. And talked to all these rabbis who were there. And then started a process of, talking to rabbinical schools and thinking about being a rabbi. I went to Israel for um, six months to learn Hebrew, which I didn't have any of before that. And then, so three years after my BA, I wound up starting rabbinical school. And so is this something that was consistent in your in your life from the time you were a child? I mean, what when you were a child, mm-hmm. did you have an idea of what you wanted to do or...? I, I wanted, growing up, I wanted to be a Shakespeare actress. I wanted, like, through through probably the middle of college, I wanted, that's what I wanted to do. Like, my sort of fantasy job, the thing that was most 
Um, and I love the language and the performance. Um, and even my last year of rabbinical school, um, as seniors, one of our capstone things was, was to write a faith statement or spiritual autobiography. And I started talking in that autobiography about kind of prayer and poetry and metaphor. And someone in my class, as we were discussing my, my piece, said, Megan, what, what's the difference between a Shakespeare sonnet and a psalm? And I'm not sure there is one for me. Um, I think that there's something really holy in, in both sets of language and in both sets of, and, in, um, and the commitment to, to really deeply engage with those texts, um, which is a long way of saying, I didn't always want to be a rabbi or know that being a rabbi was possible for me, but um, I knew that I wanted to do things that were um, engaging of my soul and my heart and my, like, my mind and my tongue and all these things that are part of what I get to do now. So I don't know that if I can say, I don't think I know that I had a call moment where I said, you know, like like a prophet or like a lot of, you know, Christian clergy I know talk about kind of the, the sense of calling and the sense of call that they have or even kind of professionally in that world, like getting a new job is called, I'm taking, an, I'm taking a new call somewhere. Right? That, 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 that language is very operative in this world of many Protestant Christians I know um, and Christian clergy. And, and for me, and that's not how Jews really talk about it, not how, in my experience, not really how rabbis talk about it. Um, like we're more conscious of, you know, we have a job and like we're, and the, like maybe we have an identity as a rabbi. Like it's a, it's a, it's an identity that you know, we formed through, through school and through learning and through the process of becoming ordained, like it becomes, an, it's identity forming. But the, the specific work we do is, is like the job. One of the jokes is my sophomore year of high school, I took one of those like what job you should have quizzes in class and I became minister was the answer, which I thought was the funniest thing in the world um, at that point in time. Ah, that's right. Rabbi Megan reminded me of this test that I took in high school as well. Uh, it was called the ASFAB test, which stands for Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery. And mine too said that I should become a preacher strange world full of small coincidences. said really threw me off and got me thinking this idea of vocation is it a strictly christian idea is it a, a catholic idea a protestant idea is it something that's residually christian and we've just forgotten about it we after all have a fairly poor historical memory i wanted to talk to someone who who was more familiar to me at least in the 
from the perspective of profession. So I decided to ask a kindred soul, another professor. His name's Henry Sussman. He's a professor of German at Yale University. Here's what he had to say about it. Being a professor is very, very much a vocation. Uh, it, it's something that can't be guided by um, specific work hours or specific regimens of going about things. We have to be free to follow our own noses when we come up with new lines of inquiry and investigation. We have to be willing to uh, read and investigate sometimes complicated material without knowing exactly what we're going to come up with. We have to do a lot of work for its own sake under conditions of some obscurity uh, in which we don't always get positive reward or positive feedback. And in all of these ways, being a professor is more of a vocation than anything else. There is a sense of um, a vocation as a kind of old boys club, uh, a world of a certain kind of privilege, a limited access world where only the people who are admitted get the chance to practice their vocation. And I don't identify with that at all. Why this metaphor? Why the metaphor of the voice? Why the metaphor of an unknown origin of a voice? And why has it this metaphor persisted in, in European culture, in, in American culture? The idea of a vocation is very present, and people use this term in, in everyday language without maybe recognizing the metaphor of the voice that's included within it. Why do you think we have this um, sort of innate attachment to the metaphor? It's a wonderful gesture on your part to make us all aware of that underlying metaphor to uh, many of our job choices and profession choices. Of course, the deep origin of the vocation is, uh, as so many things, Jew-Greek. On the Jewish side, it's very, very often the divine call to the prophet. Uh, the call that informed the prophet that he had uh, a unique role to play in human society and in human destiny. On the Greek side, of course, the vocation is the voice of the oracle. But the way that I would think about it, when someone finds their vocation, what it really is is um, the voice of the other that has been received by the individual, but what determines the choice is um, that virtual affinity that the individual has with uh, a certain kind of idiom, a certain kind of workplace, whether it's working in words or images, whether it's working in the laboratory or the library, or in the classroom. So it's a very, very complicated thing. I think when, when a person decides that uh, they want to be a scientific researcher and work in the laboratory, it's, it's really a voice of themselves that they've heard in their interactions with the environment, but that this, the decision 
uh, comes to the person with a kind of finality and authority that almost sounds like it's coming from what Lacan would call the big other. So would you say that this destiny is resistible? Do we, can we resist the call? So what is the role of free will in the idea of vocation? It's a great privilege that we have to follow our vocation. As you're saying, and I think it's a wonderful framework for this interview, that the call of vocation is very, very powerful. Uh, but it appeals as much to people who don't have the freedom and the resources to pursue it as to those who do. So those who have that, who have had that opportunity, such as myself, are very, very uh, fortunate individuals indeed. And we also need to think of all of those individuals who have found uh, a voice calling them to their vocation who haven't been able to follow it, whether it's been on the basis of economic considerations or political concerns, uh, social limitations, family limitations. Uh, the, the voice of vocation calls out to many, and anyone who actually gets to pursue it has been in a privileged position indeed. Well, Henry, I thank you very much for your thoughts. And if if this vocation as a professor or your vocation as a writer doesn't happen to work out, I think you're a natural at radio. <laughs> so I think you have a backup vocation if you're looking for one. Well, you're so kind, and it's been such a pleasure to do this with you. Ich glaub, das funktioniert, Charlotte. Charlotte, ich glaub, das funktioniert. Wenn auch nicht alles Kasse macht, so war's doch immer schön gedacht. Du hast studiert, Charlotte Charlotte, ich glaub, du hast studiert Vielleicht nicht Kunst und Politik So doch zumindest Popmusik So reflektiert, Charlotte Charlotte, du bist so reflektiert Du bist, ich sag es geradeaus Die Nana Muscuri des Deutschen Haus Oh, ich glaub, das funktioniert, Charlotte Charlotte, ich glaub, das funktioniert. 
Oh, ich glaube, Charlotte, das funktioniert. Oh, ich glaube, das funktioniert, Charlotte. So we leave the office of the professor of German and we head to the desk of the German nihilist Friedrich Nietzsche where we find his book, Human, All Too Human, open to a page with this aphorism printed on it. Ein Beruf ist das Rückgrat des Lebens. A profession is the backbone of life. Sometimes this word Beruf has been falsely translated as vocation, even though vocation is best translated as Berufung. So according to Nietzsche's formulation, does this mean that someone who leads a life without a profession leads a spineless life? I met with a professional viola player who, because of some muscle damage, had to quit her profession. I wanted to ask her if her life felt more spineless without music. I did my undergrad at Rice University, and I wanted to do that because it had both like a good music school and good academics. And I think probably when I was 16 or whatever and thinking about college, I knew that I wasn't ready to dedicate myself completely to music, that I kind of needed a kind of like two directions to go in in case one didn't work out. Um, and so I went to Rice and I did music performance, viola performance, and also uh, Greek. That was my like two direction thing that I did. Um, and then after college, I chopped off all my hair and broke up with a boyfriend and went to Europe and said, I'm going to make it. Um, doing what? I didn't really know. But then I found this Italian uh, maestro, like old viola god man, who invited me to come study with him in Switzerland. So... Um, I ended up studying with him. I got a master's degree in music performance um, in the south of Switzerland. I was there for three years and I started, I was playing in orchestras and doing auditions and that kind of thing and then I got injured. Uh, I developed a condition called focal dystonia, which is like, it's, it's related to, I mean, it's the same thing as writer's cramp. It's basically when your muscles, when you overtrain your muscles in a certain way and it happens to you know a good number of musicians so that happened and i remember going to this specialist in germany in hanover who you know he was he was a specialist in musicians neurological conditions and he told me very clearly look you have focal dystonia and um if you can do anything else with your life you should uh, i was 24 at the time and he said that there was really there was no way to fix what I had. I would never, I would probably never get to the level of playing that I was at before. Um, and so I just dropped it. It was literally one day to the next that I stopped playing. Um, and then I traveled a lot. And then I started reading um, some like medieval Italian literature. I don't even remember how I came to it, but. Um, I got really into it and then I thought, okay, this is kind of a way to incorporate a lot of the stuff that I've been doing, the literature, um, music in some way. I could, you know, work on music in graduate school and in academia. 
and I applied and it worked, to my surprise. I struggled with it for a while. Um, I remember riding the train home from Germany uh, back to Lugano. I think it was probably like 10 hours of train ride on the way back and I don't think I slept or did anything. I think I just stared into space the whole time. Like I really didn't know what to do with myself after that. Um, I had dedicated so much time to playing and, and making that my life. Um, it took me it took me a few months to actually think about doing anything else. Um, at the same time, I was kind of relieved to not be playing anymore because I had turned it into such a bad, negative obsession. It was something that I was... Um, I was really torturing myself with it. So it was time to move on. So you, you were playing so many hours a day and pushing yourself to such a high degree that it stopped being... A, a joy and it became kind of a, a burden. Yeah, absolutely. A very heavy one. At that point in our conversation, we were ambushed by tourists in a helicopter. <laughs> it's bound to happen. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't have like more of this. No, we've got plenty of battery and plenty. Of, I'm just going to let it play and we're going to hear interesting things. A helicopter. Why not? Now we're gonna have bring some it explosions. On. <laughs> I want to. I want a, a herd of wild boar to just. Oh, if, I would love that. That would be amazing. <coughs> People use the concept of vocation almost always in the singular so it's never you never have more than one right I mean are there people that actually have multiple vocations I think for me there's also an element of kind of religious connotation to it that it literally is a calling and then calling from whom so I think some people really feel like it is a calling from God or from some kind of anyway religious force that they've been put they don't put on this earth to do i don't have any religious affiliations i've never felt the need to have those in any aspect of my life so i guess that might be part of it that i just don't feel like i've been put on this earth for a purpose um do you know anybody who describes what they do as their vocation there's actually someone in my program who has finished his um finished his thesis and is now going on to explore the possibility of becoming a monk, which is a really interesting and unique path after you finish a PhD. Um, from what I understand, I think he does feel like maybe not being a monk, but anyway, having a, a spiritual calling, it is what he needs to do with his life, or at least for the next part of his life. I had to talk to this guy. His name's Griffin. I guess I should start off by saying the decision to become a monk is still temporary. I guess I'm deciding to uh, become more open to deciding <laughs> in the sense that it's, uh, it's not yet finalized. Okay. Um, and the process of uh, becoming a monk or becoming a priest, um, uh, it's a process that I guess in Catholic circles they call discernment, mm -hmm. uh, which has this metaphor, or is a metaphor for 
uh, sort of watching the smoke go away, watching the sort of false reasons uh, for moving forward fade and letting the real ones stay and then letting those guide you. Um, so my decision at this point is to be open to continue discerning uh, the vocation, to be, um, so to take a time, like, I guess take time out of my life to go and live in a monastery and see um, if that's a potential way of life that I'd like to continue living. So okay. at this point it's still, I mean, I'm very certain that I want to enter religious life. Um, I'd like to enter a religious order. I would like to pursue ordination as a priest. Um, but the exact um, specifics of this are not yet nailed down. Okay. Um, and were you raised in a religious household? My family, like I was raised Catholic. Um, my mom was Catholic. My dad was Episcopalian and converted. Um, but uh, we weren't all that religious, like, growing up, um, and my parents kind of still aren't. Um, we, we would go to church, kind of, um, but the thing that was most meaningful was um, my parents participated in this kind of um, sort of like fringe, uh, kind of like liberal progressive Catholic group in Philadelphia uh, called the Margaret Roper Forum. And it was a group that meant um, every week, sort of like the kids would do Sunday school type stuff uh, in a different way uh, than the normal uh, than the normal program. And then the adults would have talks on stuff like nonviolence, spirituality, um, social justice, this kind of stuff. So, um, but so that was my upbringing. Uh, and then I went to Catholic school, like high school, uh, with the Augustinian friars, and I found that I liked the Augustinians. Uh, I didn't so much like Catholicism in high school. I thought it was really like repressive and authoritarian and rule driven. And um, yeah, so I just kind of rejected it. <laughs> I was like, as one does, like, <laughs> I was like, this is stupid. Like, you're telling me to do one thing, you're all doing another. The most pious people are the ones doing drugs in the bathroom and talking about, you know, abusing their girlfriends and stuff. And I'm like, this is all bullshit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I really tried to get away from it okay. and I think in college um, I guess I, I don't know I I was I was I majored in industrial labor relations uh, which is kind of like it's kind of like a degree in Marxism um, like you learn about the history of the labor movement you learn labor economics you learn labor history uh, you learn current organizational practices you learn labor law and so um, I thought that that was a good way to like try to affect change in the world. Um, I've always been a little puzzled why in the U.S. there hasn't been a very strong Christian Marxist movement. Um, it's very strange. There in, in Catholicism, there's a movement called the Catholic Worker. I don't know if you know about the Catholic Worker. So this is like Christian Marxism par excellence. Uh, it was founded in the 30s by Dorothy Day, who was, uh, I don't know if she was a member of the Communist Party, uh, but grew up covering labor disputes in the 20s as a reporter. Um, and so she founded these, what she called like houses of hospitality, where the members would live in voluntary poverty. Uh, they would um, seek to provide uh, like the most basic services, like food, shelter, clothing, um, a place to live uh, for the poorest members of society. And they would live themselves in voluntary poverty. And this movement continues. Like there's a there's a Catholic worker house in New Haven. Uh, called Amistad House in, I mean, it's hidden, like you would, you would have to like seek it out. Um, but yeah, there's been this tradition of Catholic nonviolence, uh, kind of small, but still, I mean, sizable. So I looked into the paper founded by Dorothy Day called The Catholic Worker, and I found some interesting quotes about work. This one comes from 1964. 
She writes, it's a joyful experience to serve the poor and to be poor ourselves. As our family sits down at the second floor of St. Joseph's house here on Christie Street, folding, labeling, and mailing the paper, or as they scrape vegetables on the first floor for our evening meal, each is giving something, sharing with his fellows, no matter how humble his gift. There is therapy in work, and joy in sharing, a sense of belonging for those who are the outcasts of our society. And then this one comes from 1956. We need to use our hands to develop skills, to rediscover the sacramentality of things, to whittle, to knit, to crochet, to mold in clay, to weave, to darn or mend also. All of these are the quiet occupations which make for peace. And so what, at what point, what was the turning point for you from this feeling in high school yeah. of being sort of uh, seeing all of the contradictions? What, what sort of led you to your, your current state of I mind guess, about it? Yeah, I guess like going to Italy was important and it wasn't like particularly religious. Uh, I didn't set out to be religious in Italy or anything, but um, I had this sense that when I was there, I was... I just thought it was like cool stuff like when you get into literature or something or you get into movies like cinema um, Like I just thought it was cool like my, you know when you have that sense of like oh my mind is open This is awesome like you, you first see like a Fellini film or something and you first read Dante And so I had all these experiences. It was just a different pace of life I was living abroad in my junior year in Italy and I didn't explicitly connect that to religion at all um, but I knew that I wanted to change the way I was living uh, and I wanted to like pursue that kind of stuff uh, art literature history um, Philosophy this kind of stuff, and so that's why I decided to come here to Yale to do a PhD in Italian and What I guess brought me to religion again was the sense that I, I was desperately seeking God I guess like or, or uh, questions about God questions of like ultimate significance and through my reading of Dante, um, I kind of, I don't know, I found a way of expressing that. His story kind of resonated with me, the sense of like being lost. I was just like super depressed. I was like... <laughs> what age were you at that point? I think at this age I was 22, okay. like very jaded. Um, I had heard a lot of people arguing about religion uh, my junior year in Italy. And I, caught, I kind of thought it was very moralistic and pious and stuff. And I was trying to get away from that. But here, I guess, I went to, um, there's a Catholic center here called St. Thomas More, um, and I started to just go there because I would feel better. I would go to Mass. It felt like I had this religious language. I was reading Dante. It like reconnected me to this stuff from like my childhood, like the kind of the community, the sense of openness, the sense of a space to ask questions, like of, I don't know, does God exist? Uh, if so what is he or she like <laughs> like how can i i don't know how can i know this being um, so these so so this place st thomas more i sort of got more comfortable with the idea of catholicism and, and found i like to say it was like um a language that was within myself like if you grew up speaking russian and all of a sudden you leave russia and then you come back and everybody's speaking Russian, you're like, oh, well, I don't agree with everything everybody's doing in Russia, but I still speak Russian. <laughs> like, it's like a language, like, for religion. Mm -hmm. And so, but I was able to make it mine, because I was able, I guess I'm seeing this now as I'm talking to you, like, I was able to come at it through a culture that was not my own, which I guess is Italian culture. And I sort of saw the various things that I was interested in, like, bringing me there. 
Um, so and, you came at it obliquely in a way. Yeah. You had to kind of bounce off something else to, to get to it. Definitely. Yeah, super obliquely. And I guess it wasn't any, like, planned thing. I remember, like, New Haven. I remember, like, why we even come to Yale. I didn't want to come to Yale. I wanted to go to Berkeley. I wanted to, like, work on, like, contemporary cinema because I was like, well, this is, you know, this is, this is what's cool and hip and stuff. And so getting into Dante, you think, oh, this guy's like, you know, he's this dead poet. He's like stodgy. But <laughs> I remember seeing, um, I remember seeing on the green, in the New Haven green, that there were these three churches like lined up. And I was like, in the back of my mind, I was like, eventually I got to sort these questions out. Like I knew I had these questions. Like, will I, will I like, I had this sense of like, oh, maybe I'll answered on my deathbed like <laughs> well maybe youth is a kind of postponement of asking or answering yeah yeah exactly and I was like oh but if I come to Yale look they've got three churches like within even like not even a block of each other this will be a good place if I should ever choose to like start seeking one of those places out and then I would come here and hear people talking about that they would go to church and I was like you go to church but you're like a grad student you're supposed to be like you know a hip leftist intellectual who like rejects religion and like I was like so why are you going there but then here I am like reading Dante which is all about like finding God amidst like a church that is collapsing amidst a church that is corrupt um, so I guess what yeah I was kind of looking at the same time as it, I mean, it's obvious to me now that I was already looking for it okay. um, but obliquely and without being conscious of it does the metaphor of vocation as a calling, is that a metaphor that makes sense to you or that you use on your own to describe your experience? Yeah, I mean, there's the, I guess, like, I think, especially in Catholic religious circles, vocation has kind of become this, like, this, like, noun yeah, with a capital like, V, like, vocation. Like, what is my vocation? And it becomes, it starts meaning, like, life model or template. And if vocation means template, that is pre-established way of how I'm yeah, going to live my life, then it's complete nonsense. And you're just going to end up upset and miserable. You know, am I meant to be? What does God want of me? Uh, that stuff, I mean, there, there is that stuff in, uh, in Catholicism. Uh, the priest does a certain thing. The single person does a certain thing. The married person has a vocation. But it's, it gets away from the etymology of the sense of call, uh, that sense of relationship. So there's the vocation from, you know, the Latin vocare, like the voice, uh, the vox. And for me, it's been about, the vocation has been about learning to perceive the voice of God, uh, which is not like any other voice. It is like other voices, but it's different. And so vocation, there's this sense of distance you know, you have to, if I, if I see my friend over there on the quad, I have to call to him. I have to say like, hey friend, like, and then he'll come over and there will be greater intimacy between us. We'll be able to talk um, more calmly. We'll be able to say like more secret things to each other. And so I think vocation is, I mean, the life model stuff, what form is this relationship going to take exteriorly and structurally in my life is important. But the most important part, I guess, for me of vocation is that sense of relationship with God or with a being who is uh, distant from you, yet at the same time beckoning you to ever greater, greater closeness. And what, what about this relationship between vocation and work? Because we yeah, also have this right. connotation of vocational school, for example. Is vocation a kind of job? Is, it, is there work involved in vocation? Oh, yeah, definitely, because there's resistance. Like, you know, uh, your call, I guess we say, 
uh, or a belief, I guess one of my core beliefs is like God calls us to be our truest selves. Um, and in that discovery of our truest selves or our best selves or, you know, when you see a person doing the thing that they do, like their, their personness, like yours would be like your Christiness, like the thing that makes you individually you. Mine would be like my Griffinness. Um, I'm often, I often find that I'm not living out of that core truth uh, of myself. And so the work of vocation is the journey out of illusion, out of the sense of me doing things that are not really me. Uh, and we do that all the time, especially at work, <laughs> you know? Um, so the work of the vocation is um, learning to follow that voice and learning to tune into that inner voice, uh, which we'll call the voice of God. In yoga, we call it the, verse of the, uni- or the voice of the universe. Um, to really listen and to separate ourselves from all the false voices that can come from ourselves in the sense that, you know, I struggle a lot with to, like, uh, depression, self-reproach, all this kind of stuff. And you can listen to those voices that say, I'm not as good as that guy, I'm bad, or I'll never be, I'll never learn to write, or I'll never be a good monk, or whatever. And that's all illusion, that's all falseness. Um, so the work of vocation is about learning to listen um, to that true self that is always inviting you um, to better and better things, to goodness, to do good in others' lives, to do good in your own life. Um, and that takes, I mean, courage and work. Like, I have to, you got to be aware of, like, your limitations, your hang-ups, and, and try gradually to overcome them. And what are, what are the next steps in your discernment? I guess for me, my discernment involves, uh, let's see. So I, I need to spend more time, I guess, listening to what it is that I really want to do. Um, or I guess you could say, like, listening to who I want to really be or being who I am. Um, so for me, I know I want to write. I know I have these gifts. I, I want to teach. I want to... Um, make some kind of a contribution to a community, to other people's lives. Um, and so I got to find out how best to do that. Uh, so one thing with monasticism is it is kind of set up in such a way that you have time to spend a lot of time in solitude, listening, uh, reflecting. And, but that's got to be balanced with your practical work. Um, like, so there's this Benedictine motto, aura et labora, like work and pray. And the idea is that they're not different from each other, they're just different phases of the same process of living. Um, so for me, like, um, I think I need to do, a, I've done a lot of work here at Yale, and universities, American culture, whatever, emphasizes like product, emphasizes like achievement, and a lot of kind of exterior things, uh, status, this sort of thing, position. Um, I think I, what I, my next step is to do, and this is why I'm excited to go to the monastery, is to spend a little bit more time reflecting, okay, well, I've, I've done all these things and that's great, but they don't really matter. Um, who am I really? <laughs> I gotta ask that, I don't really know. Uh, who is God and what is God asking? Not what is God asking me to do, but who is God? And by God, I mean like, you know, this kind of all loving, selfless, infinitely merciful being that you know like appears to me or or speaks to me somehow uh through other people in prayer um what is this being that i love and who i'm with whom i am in love uh 
what are they who are they asking me to be um, what what will the experience be like at the monastery? Do you know what a typical day will will be there? What, yeah. what will be sort of your kind of duties there? Yeah, so I, I guess I don't really have any like official duties. Um, I'll I'll be living there for three months. So I'll live in a cell, uh, which is it's like a little apartment, like a little house, and you have your garden, you have your little study bedroom, uh, a prayer room, and like an entryway, and that's it. Um, but so you do, there's, um, the monks pray what's called the Liturgy of the Hours. Um, and that's kind of ancient tradition of Christian prayer, sort of like, um, in Islam, uh, the tradition of praying to Mecca five times a day. Um, it tries to answer the invitation of God to pray constantly. Um, so to pray five times a day. So you've got, um, you wake up six in the morning you go into church and you listen to some readings you do a bit of chanting like a half hour then you've got two hours kind of in silence where you can meditate you some people practice yoga um, some read uh, scripture they do a practice what's called Lexio Divina or divine reading uh, where you kind of try to read very slowly in the way that we read poetry the verses of, of different biblical books. Um, then there's, uh, so you, you have another prayer uh, called Lauds, that's like the, the beginning of the day. Uh, and then you've got your duties, you've got breakfast, sorry, and then you've got like your, your whatever your job is. So there's the gift shop where they sell things that they made with their hands, uh, also agricultural products like wine, olive oil, um, uh, like candy and hygienic, pro like natural hygienic, ecologically sustainable products. <laughs> so you could, so you could be involved in one of those things. Um, then you've got mass, um, which is, uh, you know, the sort of typical, like, or the I guess the most important part of the Catholic liturgy. That's right before lunch. Um, so then you've got lunch, and in the afternoon, you've got either a couple more hours of work. Um, Whatever it is, so I, I, one thing I'm going to be doing is working in the library, um, where this this monastery has existed for a thousand years, and so it's accumulated quite a lot of rare books. Um, so I'll be learning more about that, like about manuscript studies. Um, there are also courses um, and conferences that will be going on. Uh, so that I, I might want to take Greek. They've got a class in Greek. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, so I'll just be reading and reflecting. It's in a mountain. Sorry, it's in a forest on a mountain. So you can go hiking, um, you can uh, be with people. Uh, there are always people around, like not monks and non-monks. And that's one of the things I like most about the monastery is like, I view it as a space of encounter. So it's set within a national park. Um, and it's a place where there are guests, there are monks, there are workers who like work in the gift shops or, or the guest houses. And the, bl the boundaries are always kind of blurred and it's not really clear who's who. Okay. And I like that. Like, so it's this place of exchange. I mean, maybe monastic life is like the coolest way to read the Bible because you're kind of living it as if it were living poetry. At the end of the summer, I was walking down the street and Griffin rode up on his skateboard. He'd just gotten back from the monastery and decided to make a further commitment. He was trying to secure his visa and wanted to live in the monastery for the next two to three years. So there it is, vocation. So many takes on this single three-syllable word. I wanted to close this first episode of the Congress of Forms podcast with a quote from Aristotle, where your talents and the needs of the world cross, there lies your vocation. <laughs> Balıklar balıkları öter
insanlar insanları yıkmaz.